queen. Honestly. Jesus. It's she has passed today. This is coming out next week. Hopefully you got a chance to listen to our celebration of life episode. Crazy. I just can't uh believe it. Like I knew it would happen soon, mm-hmm. but when I got the push notification on my phone this afternoon, I was just very overwhelmed by it, oh, you yeah. know, which is funny because that has nothing to do with me, but <laughs> no, I, but it feels like a global thing. Like, I teared up in class. Yeah. Like when it came onto my phone and I just stopped class, I was like, guys, Queen Elizabeth II just passed away. And mm. they were like, wow. Like, like that's even how far it goes. Even yeah. the kids like know what a big fucking deal this is. And right. like, I know there's a bunch of cynical people like, well, we shouldn't have the monarchy anyways, but, but like, it's cool. She's a cool fucking person. You know, she fucked up a lot in her life. Like, you know, she's fuddy-duddy, whatever. You can yeah. call her whatever you want. But, but like, how many of our stories has she been a part of? Yeah. So She's many. a part of this one. Oh, my gosh. She's a part of my story tonight. Listen, everybody. Guys, kismet. She's kind of a part of my story. Okay. But not really, but kind of. Okay. Because <laughs> it's about kings and queens of England. Oh, perfect. Right. <gasps> well, listen, we didn't plan this. We didn't. <laughs> As um, for the years. But we had to say something. So we hope that, you know, you enjoyed our, our look back at her life. Yeah. And, you know, this is when I would usually say we're not here to talk about that. Uh, but we usually are here to talk about famous women in history. Yeah. So because this is her story. On the rocks. <laughs> <laughs> this is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history both living and now deceased yeah we talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance but keep in mind we are drinking the entire time and we're not historians mm-hmm. uh we do talk to historians mm-hmm. uh we got so many wonderful messages and text messages today when queen elizabeth passed i'm always overwhelmed that people yeah. want to tell us which please don't stop doing that even yeah, if you think don't. i already know it's like <laughs> of course i already know because mm-hmm. 10 other people texted me but i love you for reaching out to us yeah i was like so hoping i was the first one to text you mm-hmm. nope definitely not but yeah <laughs> well it was the new york times it was the you were okay. the first person that texted me i was the first me. person physically texted Perfect. me yeah that good. was good just wanted that title for myself um, <laughs> <laughs> you got it but you are busy texting your friends right now about mm-hmm. queen elizabeth ii because apparently you didn't look at the news last week yeah exactly so you're like where was i what's going on i get all my news from her store in the rocks for some reason um so i'm not up to date <laughs> um so because this is an audio form podcast and you might not know what these women look like we're going to describe them for you so you can get a picture in your head while we're telling their story we're gonna get a little physical physical Allie, who are you doing and what does she look like i'm doing guinevere of Ooh. camelot she is usually depicted as a stunning woman with very long like lightly wavy hair Mm -hmm. all the way down to her butt she almost always has two front pieces of her hair little pieces pulled back and like tied like Mm -hmm. right in the back Mm -hmm. like Cersei yes (laughs) she is tall thin white woman of Mediterranean descent which we'll get way more into in the story Um, and she's usually depicted in a medieval renaissance princess dress even though her story would have taken place far before the renaissance but it's usually tight 
belted with a gold belt. She's got long swoopy sleeves and <laughs> typically is in a gold crown. Perfect. That's what Guinevere looks like. I always picture her as like a mix between like Princess Buttercup and Cersei Lannister. Yeah. And a lot of the medieval or a lot of the paintings from like pre-Renaissance have her with that like reddish golden mm-hmm. hair. But she was described as being raven haired in Ooh, a lot of the books. So her really? hair is darker in the source material wow yeah wow way to blonde wash history guys right (laughs) (laughs) okay who are you brunette's matter too (laughs) who are you doing and what does she look like i am doing althea gibson so althea was an athletic black woman standing at 5 11 she had an oval face with a huge smile these high cheekbones like her mouth and her cheekbones like almost looked like rubbery sometimes because her Mm. smile was so big (laughs) she had almond shaped eyes that were either looking very happy holding a trophy or very determined to win one Uh, she had uh, short dark curly hair and could most often be seen in a white polo and a white pleated skirt swinging a tennis racket (laughs) oh man that's good I'm really excited about this it's gonna be good I'm about to drink a tennis court Yes. It is beautiful. Uh, I'm really excited. You might want to give it a stir because it does have cream in it. (laughs) Can you tell me what it is? Mm -hmm. So I knew I wanted to create something kind of greenish for the tennis court, tennis ball situation. So this is called First Serve. It is a key lime pie cocktail. So it's two ounces of key lime juice. And I specifically got the key lime juice. It is... Um, an ounce and a half of cream of coconut liqueur and an ounce and a half of vodka or vanilla vodka. I only had regular, so I put a little bit of vanilla extract in there. Uh, and just a tiny bit of food coloring if you want it to be really green. Cheers. Cheers. Oh, and you top it with a graham cracker rim and whipped cream. Mm. It's key lime pie in a cup. It is. It's so good. Oh. And there's a little bit of coconut in there. Mm-hmm. So nice. No, I really love that. That's interesting. We haven't done something like that before. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm. I like this a lot. And you know what? Althea deserves it. Yeah, she does. She deserves a delicious cocktail because sometimes, not enough people are talking about her. Honestly. And sometimes I get really upset when um, we have a really great cocktail and it's for like a bitch of a woman. Mm-hmm. I'm like, ah, oh, man, she was a serial killer. Yep. Let's take this good cocktail away and switch it with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yeah, hers was really bad. We did not do her justice. That's okay. Justice. Ding, ding. Mm-hmm. Oh, funny. Okay. So you want to know what I know? Yes, I do. Okay, I feel like she is to tennis what Jackie Robinson was to baseball. Yes. She, like, broke the color barrier. Mm-hmm. She was extraordinarily talented. Um, she's, like, before Billie Jean King. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, the pictures I see of her are her, like, running across the court with, like, an outstretched, like, oh, yeah. arm. But it, really, all I know about her is her her tennis career okay um i don't know if she ever went to any like super major championships i don't know if she was turned away a lot i don't know like if she got married if she had kids like i don't have any of that in my brain okay perfect so you're gonna learn about all of that today um but i will say i was surprised at how few sources there were about her i think 
on Wikipedia, it did say that there is like a biopic in the works of her. So someone did buy the rights to her life. So I'm hoping that comes soon because we definitely need it. Um, and all the podcasts were 20 minutes and under about her. Really? I was shocked. I would feel like somebody should have like written or made something about her and the Williams sisters, like mm-hmm. a comparison style. Yeah. And there are like a few bio, like she wrote two biographies about herself. Oh. Um, so I got a little bit of information from the Amazon preview. Leave it up to uh, her. <laughs> sorry about that. Um, but, but yeah, but you know, we don't have time to read an entire book usually in the week leading up, especially right no. now. Cause it's wedding season for us. Oh, uh, We've got one week. One week, guys. Next week, great. when we're recording this podcast, we'll barely be talking to you. Yeah. We'll yeah. be like just yelling into the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> we gotta um, go. Sorry. <laughs> so, but my sources that I did get were uh, BBC Great Lives did an episode about her, uh, the Woman Inspire podcast, a New York Times article by Sally Jacobs, and of course, Wikipedia. So... And also, if I get tennis stuff wrong, I'm really sorry. <laughs> tennis is a very complicated sport. I felt um, that when we did Billie Jean King. Clay court? I was like, I don't know Indoor what's court? happening. Grass court? Love, love V100? I have no fucking idea. Games that match? <laughs> <laughs> so, here we go. Althea Gibson was born on August 25th, 1927, in the town of Silver, South Carolina. Her parents... Daniel and Annie Bell Gibson were sharecroppers on a cotton farm. But soon the Great Depression hit their small town. And after a whole year of work, her dad made $75. Shut up. So like, we need to leave. (laughs) I spent more than that on ingredients for this cocktail. (laughs) So they joined the Great Migration to Harlem, New York. Hmm. Uh, Althea went first to live with her Aunt Sally. um, And then her father followed. And then finally he sent for her mother once he got a job. Uh, He worked in a garage making $10 a week. And her aunt made a living selling bootleg whiskey. (laughs) This brought in nice money for her, but it was not the best environment for a young child. Althea described accidentally drinking glassfuls of whiskey when she was a little girl to the point where she had to get her stomach pumped once. And she said, yeah, I would wake up all the time and my parents would have their fingers down my throat because they would have to like, like she got it pumped at a hospital once. And then her parents were also like, making her throw up all the whiskey. So, like, like, was she accidentally thinking it was apple juice and would gulp it or something? Yeah, she was like, I just saw it, and I would, like, just gulp it down. And then, like, when... And then she was like, I feel like I have, like, an alcohol problem because, like, it doesn't... Taste good. This is, like, easy for me to drink. (laughs) Yeah, the normal kid would spit that shit out. Yeah, so she, like, didn't... I don't think she really drank much when she was older because she was like, obviously, I have, like, a problem. (laughs) So... Anyways, uh, but soon the Gibson family got their own place and Althea had three more sisters and a brother. But Harlem was not the safest place to grow up. Uh, One day on her way home from school, she got beat up by an older girl in her neighborhood. And instead of sympathizing with his daughter, her father told her that if she didn't go back, find the girl and beat her up, he was going to beat Althea up. Oh, I see. 
so that's what she did. Uh, Althea went and found her and kicked her butt. And <laughs> yeah, not a great cycle. Um, Can Alth- we stop telling our kids to fight other kids? I don't like that at all. Please I have parents don't. say that all the time. Like, you can't run from people in the real world. If they hit you, hit them back. I'm I like, love actually, to run. Like, let's like not do that. I'll run let's, away every time. Maybe we, if we didn't hit back, maybe they wouldn't hit in the first place. Like, I don't know. Like, right. I understand self-defense, but <clears throat> like, there's a point when it's like, maybe stop teaching your kid about violence. Yeah. So, Althea was obviously a tough, competitive girl, and she was originally being groomed by her father to be a professional boxer. He would often tell her, you know, just in the middle of the day, like, put your dukes up, and they would practice boxing together on the roof of their building. But often practice would come after a long, frustrating day for Daniel, and he would end up taking it out on Althea, just beating the shit out of her and saying that it was all training. There was a strange line between boxing practice and abuse. Hmm. It was not great. Uh, But Daniel just like saw this boxing thing as like a way out of poverty for their family. And this is her dad? Her dad. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, And he also abused her outside of practice. Uh, He would whip Althea if she didn't obey. Um, And one time he just walked up to her and punched her in the face. Like, It was not great. Uh, One time Althea ran to the police station because she was so afraid to go home. They let her stay there for about an hour, uh, but then called the mother Annie to pick her up. She also found refuge sometimes in a Catholic shelter for abused kids. Even though she was scared um, and not in a great situation, you know, she said, well, at least it made me tough, Uh, you know, which I would not uh, give. I don't know. I just, <laughs> it's hard. I under, I understand she's trying to see the positive side of it. Cause like, that's what you have to do. Unfortunately, if you're dealt that kind of the car- abuse survivors, a lot of that, it's like, if they walked out of it, it's like, well, yeah. I grew. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. And yeah. she did grow. Um, but she also, not that she would choose that. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely not. Um, but it also gave her a stubborn edge. Uh, Althea never liked being told what to do. And the thing that people were often telling her to do was go to school. Althea skipped school constantly. <laughs> <laughs> she called herself a traveling girl. School to her was a place where she would meet up with her friends to figure out where they were going to go and what they were going to get up to that day. Perfect. <laughs> and usually what they ended up doing was going to the movies, running off to the Apollo Theater to catch afternoon shows and playing sports. Althea loved sports. Anything with a ball she was drawn to, like stickball or softball or bowling, but her favorite by far was basketball. She even formed a basketball team with her friends. They called themselves the Mysterious Five, which I love. (laughs) But there was another problem with where these kids were playing. It's not like they had their choice of rec centers or nice courts or playgrounds. They were playing just in their streets, in their neighborhood. And this ended up being really dangerous. Kids were getting hit by cars at an alarming rate in Harlem. Um, so the city actually did something very productive to like save these kids lives, which it's like, wow, that would be so nice if they kept doing it. Obviously they don't care anymore, but so (laughs) Althea's street ended up being designated as a police athletic league play area. So the police came and pal, they barricaded it during the daylight hours. They, so no cars could drive on this street and it just basically 
designated this play space. They're like, obviously, you live in this area that we can't just build a new playground because there's no space. So they're like, if you're going to play in the street, let's make it safe for you. We had a PAL center in uh, near my house in Overly. Really? Yeah. So mm-hmm. funny. I didn't, I like had never heard of this thing before. Yeah. I, I guess I, I always just thought it was something that was near my house. I didn't know it was something they did in lots yeah. of places. Mm-hmm. But, but police would come and just hang with kids. I think it's like trying to connect with the community too, especially yeah. if you live in a hard area. Yeah. And it makes sense. And so the other cool thing too is that they didn't just put up the barricades and like leave them. Like they actually built stuff for them to play with as well. So. This is the thing that would change Althea's life because one of the things that they put in this area was a paddle tennis court. So paddle tennis is a little different than tennis and it's not even pickleball. You know, pickleball is like all the rage right now, apparently with like middle-aged folks. Um, (laughs) Hey, watch who you're talking to. (laughs) (laughs) The court in paddle tennis is smaller, has no double lanes, and the net is lower. Okay. It's also played with a solid paddle as opposed to a racket. So it's like a ping pong. Yes. And it has a depressurized tennis ball being used. So it's like a harder smaller ball i think um so this meant that the court could fit on their street it meant the paddles didn't break as easily as rackets do you didn't have to restring them and since the balls were depressurized they didn't have to worry about the balls getting ruined if they got left outside or anything you know they actually thought it through of like what would be the most like the sport that would make the most sense here you know and that was paddle ball and honestly because it's like it's the same as soccer and basketball. They're great in low-income communities because you need literally one thing, and it's yeah. a ball. You can make a basket out of anything. You can make a goal out of anything. And a soccer ball, you can make out of trash. A basketball <laughs> has to bounce. But, like, that's why low-income communities go with those sports. You don't see these kids playing lacrosse, football. No. Like, nobody <laughs> has the money for pads and mouth guards and helmets. Like, that's absurd. Absolutely not. <laughs> and now also in Maryland, there's, like, pay to play rules so like if you want to play for your like high school team you have to pay a certain amount of money wait what you not only have to make the team but you have to pay money it's a pay to play in what schools in maryland in public schools in maryland yeah so it's a pay to play that's fucked up i know you have to make the team and you have to pay money no because like schools can only allocate enough certain amount of money to like sports teams and all that shit is so expensive so now parents there's a lot of kids that just can't play sports no, that I mean, should never be a it thing. It should never be a thing. It's the same way when you apply to college and they're, you're, they're like, okay, the application fee. It's like, all right, I'm already spending $100,000 to try to go to your school. Right. I don't want to pay an application fee. God. I know. That's terrible. so upsetting. I didn't know. Because like sports for me were so important growing up. Mm-hmm. And I can't believe that they are now putting more barriers between <laughs> kids just like playing sports oh, together. Yeah. It's so oh, upsetting. Yeah. So... Paddleball as a game was pretty popular at the time, and Althea turned out to be very good at it. She was so good that by 1939, at the age of 12, she was the New York City women's paddle tennis champion, which is insane. For the whole city? (laughs) Yeah, the whole city. Damn. There weren't many places that Althea um, could play outside of the little spot, so she said her and her dad would break into tennis courts at night to practice, and she credits this for her uh, great serve later on. She said, I got really good at sensing where the boundaries are in a tennis court because I couldn't see them, so I had to just practice getting it right every time. (laughs) 
So she's playing paddleball, having a good time. And soon a man named Buddy Walker, a musician, uh, took an interest in her and suggested that she play tennis. Althea didn't want to play at first. She had this idea that like tennis was a sport for like weak, rich people to like have with their cocktails, which like also true. That is true. But (laughs) that's what it is. But it also can be a sport for very strong women. So, Mm -hmm. Um, so she agreed to play and then she started playing and there was no denying her natural talent. I think she also liked the challenge of a new sport. I think she was excited to get into it. So this guy, a buddy, gave her used tennis rackets, and he started to coach her. And then he was like, all right, we're playing on these kind of like rinky-dink neighborhood courts. I think it's time to try out the Cosmopolitan Tennis Club in Harlem. This was a tennis club where prominent members of the black community could play, and it was a place... Uh, It was like the place to be if you were, as one put it, one person put it, a black person of some achievement. So it was made up of what W.B. Du Bois called the talented 10th. So this is all the doctors, the lawyers, the professionals of black society. Like this was their social club because they couldn't get into the white ones. So they just built their own. And it was really fucking cool. It is really cool. I, I struggle because I just want to kick the white people. I know. <laughs> like, and also, it's like it makes me sad that we're just like, oh, the talented 10% have to be doctors and lawyers. And like, mm-hmm. there are like really fucking cool ass black people yeah. <laughs> that aren't doctors and lawyers. And I mean, Harlem, for example. Yeah. And, that, and that's why and that's where like she's from. That, and that's yeah. where this club is, right. too. You know, they're putting it at the epicenter of all of this like you know, black momentum, you know? Mm-hmm. So, you know, and it's kind of cool. They're like, all right, if you want to let us in, like, we're going to make our own and it's going to be cool as hell. Yeah. <laughs> um, and soon Althea was beating all of them on the tennis court, but they were wary of her. They all had money. And there was this little girl coming in with short, messy hair. She's wearing blue jeans to play tennis. And then once they heard that she had a used tennis racket it was like woof <laughs> just like my god come on just little girl. throw her a bone i know um but after it said about an hour of her wiping the floor with seasoned players they agreed that her talent was too incredible to pass up well didn't that happen with the williams sisters because they had beads remember yeah. they uh-huh. like were like oh these trashy girls and mm-hmm. it's like calm down calm down um so the members then banded together and sponsored her for a membership which was so great And then she got a job at the center in exchange for lessons from a man named Fred Johnson, who was interesting in his own right, because he was a one-armed tennis player. (laughs) So shoot. A shark? think about that. (laughs) A fucking one, an amputee taught Althea Gibson how to play tennis. Very cool. So front hand, backhand, all the All of it. He did all of it. Uh, So soon she was going to competitions held by the American Tennis Association. Now we're going to get another little bit of history for you. Uh, The American Tennis Association was started in 1916 as a way for black Americans to play tennis in competition. Since again, all the clubs were whites only. (laughs) The first ATA National Championships... Fun fact, we're held at Druid Hill Park in Baltimore. Stop. Can you believe it? 
They're redoing that park right now. Very excited I'm about it. I'm crossing my fingers about it. I think it's going to be great. I want them to also redo all the row homes across the street, but not so much that they're gentrified and people can't live there. Yeah, because they're gorgeous. They're Those beautiful. townhomes are so nice, but in such disrepair. Mm-hmm. Johns Hopkins, I'm calling mm-hmm. you. Thank you. <laughs> so in 1941... Althea Gibson enters the American Tennis Association New York State Championships when she is about like 14 or 15 years old. And she starts winning the national championship in 1944. She wins in 44, 45. She lost in the women's final in 46, but then won again in 1947 and then won every year for the next decade. (laughs) For a decade? Yeah. Yeah. So she's just blowing people out of the water. Yes, she is. So how old is she when she started doing that? Uh, 14, 15. Okay, so she's like 24 and she's still kicking ass. Oh, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was around this time when she's a young teen that she meets famed boxer Sugar Ray Robinson. Sure did. But although at this time, he's not quite Sugar Ray. He would win his first big championship the year after they met. But to Althea... He was still a prominent black athlete who was like on the like everybody knew that he was going to be something big, which was something that she inspired to be. So what did she do? She challenged into a bowling match. <laughs> Katie, don't flirt with me. That I know. Beautiful. I would love to say that she won. I have no idea. I did not say, but we'll say she did. But we know that she was better at really good at bowling later in life. I'll just have a little little clue for you for later. She doesn't become a professional bowler, but I'm just going to say she bowled a 300. <laughs> exactly. Sugar Ray bowled, bowled a 110. Everything's fine. Everybody knows it. You heard it here first. <laughs> History has been written. <laughs> but he like fell in love with her and he was like, you're so fucking cute. I love this. His wife loved Althea and like they became lifelong friends and like really strong supporters of each other mentee-mentor situation yes mentee-mentor which I love too because like we also don't have enough of that going on like Like, male athletes and female athletes yes mentoring each other I love it he even bought her a saxophone years later because she had shown an interest in jazz music and he's like okay baby let's do this I'm gonna buy you a saxophone (laughs) shut up but first tennis Althea was indeed winning a lot of competitions in her early career. She once said, I knew that I was an unusual, talented girl through the grace of God. I didn't need to prove that to myself. I already know. (laughs) I only wanted to prove it to my opponents. And she was a fearsome opponent. She was aggressive and competitive to the point where she said if she started to lose, she would get so angry that she wanted to fight the other opponents. (laughs) She never did fight anybody, but she did not lose gracefully. She had a confidence about her that many read as arrogance, and everything about her was just very untennis like which they were still, I couldn't help but think of the Williams sisters because they were saying that about them as well mm. when they were coming up in the tennis world. Well, it's funny because something your dad said to me really always stuck with me about athletes because it's not something that's true of me, but he said it's something that's true of you and of Jake that you hate losing more than you love winning. And that's what <laughs> made you both such competitive athletes. Like for me, I love winning, but like losing, it's like, okay, I lost like good for the other team. But like, like you and producer, like really hate losing. You would prefer to not do that. (laughs) 
Yeah. And I feel like that's what I'm hearing here. She had such aggression against losing. Mm-hmm. And that's like a real competitor in, in a sport like that. Yeah. Like with running, you're competing against yourself. Well, it doesn't hurt the same. And it's funny because I think that's why I then turned my life towards rock climbing because again, I'm only competing against myself. I am. I'm the only one who keeps my own score. And then at some point you're like, okay, I had a bad day. I had a period. Like this wasn't it for me. Mm -hmm. Although I I did get a really good climb yesterday with a double knee bar. Which is pretty fucking cool. You're a true queen. So anyways. A true queen. Um, <laughs> Anybody who knows what that means, shout at us later. So anyways, uh, she was also not the most technical player. Okay. She had an incredible amount of brute strength, but no finesse. <laughs> but two, Got a lot of brains, but no polish. Uh-huh. But two doctors saw past her rough edges. Dr. Walter Johnson and Dr. Hubert Eaton approached Althea after a match that she lost and she was really upset. She's feeling down. She's mad. People around her are like, I can't believe this. She should be more graceful when losing. This is so awful. Like she shouldn't play tennis. They came up to her and they asked her a simple question. They said, how would you like to play at Wimbledon? Which of course she immediately scoffed at. She's like, get real like that's ridiculous like i can't go to wimbledon she's like i just lost i'm barred from most local tournaments because they're whites only there's no way i'm going to london because at this time in order to qualify for things like that you had to they rack up all your points from the season and if you can't play at most of the tournaments you can't rack up those points but they convinced her that with their help and patronage she would go to wimbledon So she moved to Wilmington, North Carolina with them to start the next chapter of her career. She didn't care for North Carolina much. She wasn't used to the blatant segregation of Jim Crow laws in the South. And she was really shocked by how she was treated as a woman, which I found very interesting that she was like more, almost like more shocked about that. She's like, wow, they just like really give two shits about women here. Like what the (laughs) fuck is going on? But the two men had a plan, so she stuck around. First, she would win an athletic scholarship to a black university so she could have access to the wide world of college athletics. So, like, that's step number one. So she was like, sorry, guys, quick detour really quick. I didn't really go to school, um, so, like, I might need to, like, finish school before I go to college. Gotta brush, <laughs> brush up. They're like, okay, first you get your high school degree, then college. So in 1949, she graduated from Wilmington High and then went on to college in Tallahassee, Florida. She went to Florida A&M University on a full athletic scholarship and was a member of the Beta Alpha chapter of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority. <clears throat> I don't know much about it. Alpha, but... Beta, Kappa. Yes. Uh, the plan was going well, but there was one issue. Her school didn't have a women's tennis team. So she played with the boys. She practiced with them. She is now being coached by these college level coaches which is so great for her and that's like the whole point of her being there Hmm. but it's also annoying because she can't compete with them against other schools so she's getting the grade a coaching like they wanted her to but not enough competitions but she was still regularly playing in the ata tournaments but she again couldn't get very far in the wider world of tennis because as we said like she couldn't participate in a lot of the competitions 
And it's interesting because the United States Tennis Association banned racial discrimination. Hmm. So it wasn't them, kind of, but they still kept having tournaments at whites-only clubs. (laughs) So it's like, okay, you're not banning us, but, like, you're also, like, kind of banning us because... You're not, we can't play at these clubs and you know it. And also I think the way tennis and golf works is you earn certain points throughout the year to be able to attend these certain competitions. That's exactly it. And she can't, no black player could get enough points because they can't compete. Right. Unfair. Yeah. Stupid. It's super unfair. It's just really frustrating. Um, So members of the ATA continued to lobby for the desegregation of tennis tournaments. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, we know the association <laughs> is desegregated, but the tournaments are not. Hmm. But it wasn't until 1950 when something finally changed. Alice Marble, a white American tennis player who won 18 Grand Slam championships between 1936 and 1940. Get it, girl? Wait. That's only four years. Is that right? 18 Grand Slam championships? Well, yeah, because they had, uh, they have several. Oh, uh, okay. Wait, no, wait, because a Grand Slam is if you win all four in the each court. In each court. Yeah. Okay. So there's like four per court. I only know this from the Serena episode. Mm-hmm. So you can win multiple Grand Slams a year. Oh, interesting. And then it's like a, I, it's something like that. Yeah, I'm sure a, she was probably in a doubles team too, yeah. which adds to that. Right. I'm like, okay. Yeah, so there's lots of slams you can get based on the, Court this season, and if you're playing singles or doubles. All right, cool. Moon over my slammy. (laughs) So, (laughs) I just can't get over that. That's a real dish at Denny's. Moon over my hammy. It's really funny. Rudy Tutti Fresh and Fruity is my favorite. Really? Order that dish. What is it? It is pancakes with tons of fucking fruit on it. (laughs) I just like the name. (laughs) I never ordered the moons over my hammy, but maybe for my birthday. Um. It's coming. It's coming. I went to Denny's for. (laughs) Oh my God. Double My birthday. Double (laughs) date. Yes. I'll pay. (laughs) Allie, I'm literally asking for the moon. You don't have to. Listen, that's a joke because I'd pay no matter where we went. (laughs) And I appreciate it. For anyone. For literally anyone all the time. (laughs) So, Alice Marble. An absolute queen. Also a great name. Yes, really good name. And she's very cute. She kind of looks like a 1920s Twiggy. I would love to be like, I'm losing my marbles. (laughs) (laughs) Where's my wife? (laughs) (laughs) So she writes a scathing open letter in the magazine American Lawn Tennis. Or maybe it's Lawn and Tennis. Let me know in the comments. (laughs) She said in part... If tennis is a game for ladies and gentlemen, it's also time we acted a little more like gentle people and less like sanctimonious hypocrites. Shit, get on your adult (laughs) manners. Where are your adult manners? If Althea Gibson represents a challenge to the present crop of women's players, it's only fair that they should meet that challenge on the courts where tennis is played. Oh. Speaking for myself, I will be glad to help Althea Gibson in any way I can if I can give her an iota more confidence by rooting my heart out from the gallery. She can take my word for it. I'll be there. All right, Alice. Guys, this letter is so good. That's only a little part of it. The letter is so good. Ten points for Gryffindor. Dude, this letter finally made waves in the tennis world and people started to agree. They're like, it's time to integrate 
Like tennis this people is ridiculous. Love ruffle and feathers. Yes, they do. <laughs> <laughs> so in 1950, Althea Gibson became the first black player to receive an invitation to the Nationals, which is now the U.S. Open. Shit. Where she made her Forest Hills, that's where they play the U.S. Open, debut a few days after her 23rd birthday. Cute. And this first tournament was a doozy. <laughs> her first match was against tennis legend Louise Broth, who was at the height of her career. Okay. So it's like if you were a freshman tennis player set up against Serena Williams. <laughs> Which happens. <laughs> the match starts and Althea is clearly nervous. Not only is she nervous because, you know, she's playing such an esteemed player, but also because this is her first big tournament and people are in it with a mixed crowd. I'm sorry, not mixed, a totally white crowd. And people are shouting racial slurs at her from the gallery. And she probably feels like she's wearing, like carrying the weight of a, like a, an entire yeah. culture on her shoulders. That fucking sucks. This is her first match. Oh, Jesus. Louise takes the first win in the first match. But in the second match, something clicks. And Althea starts to find her groove. She's starting to win. And it's looking like she is about to win the second match. And suddenly, the heavens open up. And it starts to torrential downpour on the court. Not only that, there's lightning and thunder crashing overhead a lightning strike comes down and hits a stone eagle on the building and destroys it. <laughs> this was not a normal storm. <laughs> they obviously suspend the match, uh, but this leaves Althea thinking about everything. And the more she thinks about how good her opponent is and like, she's like, oh my gosh, nature is against me, you know, and just the crowd was so much worse than she thought they would be. She loses her edge a bit. And then the next day, Louise beats Althea in the rescheduled match within 20 minutes. Damn it. But she, thankfully, they ruined her flow. I know. But thankfully, people did see her potential shining through. And this was written about as a great first try rather than a total failure. And many reviewers agreed on one thing. Althea Gibson has the best serve in women's tennis. Even Ever? though she lost. Oh. Even though she lost. So she loses, but she's still really fucking good. She's still really fucking good. To the point where people are writing about how good she was, even though she lost in the first round. Perfect. Amazing. Great. And they say, like, she has the best serve. Like, even though she lost, she has the best serve. Can I work on your backhand? Get it. Come on. So she keeps going with her eyes set on Wimbledon. She keeps playing, working on her skills, not just her strength. And in 1951, she becomes the first black player to appear in the famous tournament. She loses in the third round, but the important thing was that she was there. By the end of the next year, she is ranked seventh in the national standing, and she is continuing to break racial barriers everywhere she is sent. Because now people are like, okay, well, I guess we can't say no to her competing in the tournament. She's been at Wimbledon. So now she has access to all the tournaments that she didn't before, so she can actually start gaining her points. So this, and this is training. Mm -hmm. But there was another problem. There was no money in women's tennis at the time. That really wouldn't be addressed until Billie Jean King came along. We talked about it in her episode a lot. Um, this is known as the closed era of tennis. So Althea had to raise her own money. And so like famous boxers like Joe Lewis would like 
whole dinners for her to fundraise for her to be in these fucking tournaments. Like wow. she was really close to a lot of boxers apparently. <laughs> but and she would have to fundraise to get to these places and she also had to work odd jobs like she was an elevator operator she was a waitress she was a PE teacher in Missouri just to make ends meet and after a couple years she even thinks about quitting tennis because she is so frustrated so discouraged she's like why am I spending money to lose because she still hadn't quite gotten the technique. You know, she's like, I know I'm powerful. I know I have the best serve in tennis, but I'm still losing because I'm playing all these ex- very experienced players and I'm paying to lose. Like, this is so fucking frustrating. But then in 1955, she is approached by the State Department <laughs> and asked to go on a six week tennis tour of Asia where she will be paid. Everything will be paid for. And she's like, yeah, that sounds amazing. I love to travel and get paid to play tennis for once in my fucking life. Right. (laughs) So the U.S. State Department was doing this goodwill tennis tour as kind of a we're not racist kind of campaign because the rest of the world was like, what's going on with you guys? It seems like you're super fucking racist. And they're like, no, we're not. Look at Althea Gibson. Look at our black, (laughs) our one. (laughs) So she goes off on this tennis tour. Uh, It's like six weeks long. And she ends up staying in Asia because she starts to really play against like other types of players. And she starts to learn for them. And she starts to win again. And she starts to get her love back for the sport. It's so cool. She goes to so many different countries. It's really neat. So she gets her groove back. And then in 1956, she became the first African-American athlete to win a Grand Slam tournament and the first black player to win the French Champions Singles event. Oh, shit. And the French. Uh Uh-huh. They know how to play. And they're chill with black people. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Well, that was another thing she said. She was like, I didn't realize. Like, she was like, it was so nice traveling in Asia and in, like, France and stuff because she was like, it was so nice not to be... Uh, yelled at for being black. <laughs> it's like, it was so nice, like not being in all these like racist areas. Uh-huh. So that's also why she kind of stayed longer. Yeah. It's like high five for sure. Mm-hmm. So this was also when she won the doubles title, uh, partnered with a woman named Angela Buxton. She met Angela while on tour in Asia and she and Angela soon became not only tennis partners, but Angela was her closest friend and confidant. Closest ever. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they were a couple. We'll see when, like, more information about Althea comes out. But, like, they were really close. Um, and Angela could – I would love for them to be a couple. I'm not putting that on her because she was married to two men. So, like, <laughs> eventually. We'll talk about that later. But I just want them to be a couple so bad. But I think also there's – I mean – Women didn't have a lot of agency mm-hmm. up until recently. Yeah. So a lot of times, even if you were straight and married to men, the only way that you could feel truly yourself and express your own opinions was with your girlfriends. Mm-hmm. And that is, even if it's platonic, it is a romantic relationship. Oh, yeah. It's a very passionate, loving relationship with female friends. Yeah. And they were really close because Angela could relate to a lot of what Althea was going through because She was a Jewish player from Great Britain who was also banned from most clubs in Britain. Okay. 
they so you know she was like i understand where you're coming from because like they won't let me play just because I'm Jewish. Jewish. Like, it's so frustrating. So they became a team and they continued to dominate the court together as two outcasts. Sometimes they were even called the odd couple and they remained lifelong friends. Later in the season, she won the Wimbledon doubles championship with Angela, the Italian championship in Rome, the Indian championship in New Delhi and the Asian championship in Ceylon. So she is doing good. Mm. She also reaches the quarterfinals in singles at Wimbledon and the finals at the U.S. Nationals, losing both to a player named Shirley Fry. 1956 is obviously a great year for her career, but it would not compare to 1957. Hmm. In 1957, she finally beats Louise Broff, the woman she lost to all those years ago at the U.S. Open. She also wins the Australian Championships, and in all, she reached the finals of eight Grand Slam events this year. But her biggest win by far was at Wimbledon. She won the women's single competition at Wimbledon against a player named Darlene Hard. And I don't know if this was a big deal at the time. No one mentioned it in the research, but Althea wins and they run up and she shakes her hand and she's like given this dish. We'll talk about the plate. Yeah, the plate. And there's this great picture of Darlene reaching up on her tippy toes and she's kissing Althea on the cheek. Like it is so, it's such a gorgeous, gorgeous photo, you know? And a like, gracious loser. Yeah. <laughs> Althea was not so gracious when she lost, but I love that she is also like, I mean, what was it like decades before? Like Shirley Temple was like almost outcast because she was dancing with a black man. And like here, this tennis player is going up and kissing her on the cheek. And like, I don't know if like people what were pissed about it. 1957. So this is, might be around the time that that first, uh, no, that first Star Trek kiss on television was mm-hmm. probably the 70s, right? Yeah, in the 70s. Okay, so, so this is... This must have been a big deal. It has to, had to have been. Yeah. Um, but I just, I love it because Darlene is so happy for her. And you can tell that because I think she was like, oh my God, like you fucking did it. Like yeah. this, I think she knew that it was a huge fucking deal. Then, She's like, I'm a part of history too. Yeah, <laughs> woo, I lost. I lost. Two black women. For the first time. <laughs> then Queen Elizabeth II uh, herself, stop. May she rest in peace. Stepped out onto the court, shook Althea's hand, and presented her with the prize, the Venus Rosewater dish. Which I might be incorrect, but it seemed like the only time that Queen Elizabeth presented the dish. I don't know if it's the only time, but when I looked it up, like who usually does it? It's usually like a random duke or duchess or somebody, mm. you know, not a member, not the queen. Like, I mean, she's she's, you know, she became queen what right before World War Two. So this is yeah. the 1950s. So she's young. Yeah, she was. She's young. like in her 30s. She's a little baby. Uh, and she's looking so cute. Of course. That night at the Winner's Ball, she wore a dress made for her by her best friend, Angela Buxton. Angela made her dress for the Wimbledon Ball. Okay, Lorelai. And she danced the night away with the Duke of Devonshire. When she came home to the States, Manhattan held a ticker tape parade to honor her. Oh she rode in a car up Broadway, waving to a hundred thousand screaming fans with confetti all around her. 
It was the first time a ticker tape parade was held to honor a black woman. Amazing. I can't believe that. But then the next day, she was reminded of the place she called home when she went to her next tournament in Chicago and was turned away from the hotel because she was black. Well, you know, the Midwest. What can we do? (laughs) She loved winning. She loved tennis. But frankly, she didn't love all the press. And she hated that she was under this immense pressure to be talking about race all the time. Even though it was such a huge part of her career, she lamented sometimes that it was more of a topic of conversation than her tennis playing. You know, she was like, I want to be known as a good tennis player, like first and foremost. She goes, yes, it's great that I'm breaking these color barriers. But she goes, also like, she's like, it kind of makes it seem like I'm only getting this far because I'm the only black player. But she goes, I'm beating them fair and square. Like, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. I'm also just a good fucking tennis player, you know? And so she didn't always talk about the race issue as much as leaders of the black movement wanted her to. And it rubbed people the wrong way. And then people were like, well, she's not doing enough. She's not playing her part. She's not being a good enough role model. And Althea is like, I'm just here to play tennis and like be good at it. Like, my God. Like, and it really weighed on her, you know, because she's like, I'm more than just this one thing. And it really, I don't know, it just, it made her really sad that, like, she was boiled down to this one aspect of her identity. Because she was like, yes, it's important, but I'm doing the work so that other women can come after me, but I don't have to talk about it all the time. It's really hard to expect people to be activists. Yeah. Um, You know, and it's weird because I can't imagine being that famous and having it happen to you, but I've definitely met people before that I only know via the podcast uh, or like people at Jake's work who like listen to a couple episodes and then they'd like shake my hand and we'd say hi and then they'd stare at me like I'm going to (laughs) talk like I have something to say and it's like I don't have something to say right now like Mm -hmm. that's prepared like right (laughs) we literally write it eight page script (laughs) and then I read it out loud like I'm not like I don't have that in my brain right so I can't imagine being constantly on a press circuit where you're supposed to be training as an athlete but then also supposed to be speaking for your entire self like that's crazy yeah so she just keeps going playing tennis like she always has in 1958 she successfully defended her wimbledon and u.s national singles title so she wins again and uh then she won her third straight wimbledon doubles championship she was the number one ranked woman in the world and in the united states in 57 and 58 she was named female athlete of the year by the associated press in both years Garnering, and this is something people vote on, she had over 80% of the votes for Best Female Athlete of the Year in 1958. Damn. That's unfathomable. Over 80%. I want to know who el- what else people voted for. Yeah. She also became the first black woman to appeal on, appear on the cover of Sports Illustrated Magazine. Damn. And on the cover of Time Magazine. No way! Yes. But none of this was paying the bills. Oh, no. (laughs) There was no prize money at major tournaments, and direct endorsement deals were prohibited. Players were limited to meager expense allowances strictly regulated by the U.S. Tennis Association. She said about this time period, Being the queen of tennis is all well and good, but you can't eat a crown. 
nor can you send the Internal Revenue Service a throne. The landlord and the grocer and the tax collector are funny that way. They like cold, hard cash, (laughs) which I love that quote of like, yeah, I'm the best tennis player in the world, but I still can't pay my fucking bills. It's ridiculous. So in 1958, after having won 56 national and international singles and double titles, she retired from tennis because she's like, I literally can't afford to be playing this sport anymore. She won 58 titles. No, sorry, 56 in 1958. So this is only in two years. She won Wimbledon in 1957. That's ridiculous. And she's not making enough money, so she has to leave. But Althea had other interests besides tennis. Uh, She started singing and released a jazz record called Althea Gibson Sings in 1959. She did. (laughs) She performed two of, of her songs on the Ed Sullivan Show in May and July of that year. You know, the record didn't do too great, uh, but, you know, she's also competing with, like, the greats of jazz, you know, like, it's a tough like jazz Elvis market. Cheryl. Yeah, <laughs> and, like, Billie Holiday. Um, <laughs> so then she got into film. She appeared as a celebrity guest on the TV panel show What's My Line, and she was cast as a slave woman in the John Ford motion picture starring John Wayne, The Horse Soldiers. In this movie, she doesn't have any lines because she refused to say the ones that were scripted. The script said to speak in a, quote, Negro dialect, and she said, I will absolutely not do that. Thank you very much. So she didn't have any lines because she refused to say them. She also worked as a sports commentator. She appeared in print and television advertisements for various local products, and she increased her involvement in social issues and community activities. In 1960, her first memoir, I Always Wanted to Be Somebody, was written with sports writer Ed Fitzgerald, uh, and it was published in 1964 at the age of 37. She made a little bit of a turn, and she became the first African-American woman to join the Ladies Professional Golf Association, or the LPGA. (laughs) Uh, Okay, Tigress Woods. What? What? She didn't even a professional golf player. This to me, okay. <laughs> I feel like golf and country music are things that you can just enter into. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like if you're semi good at either singing, owning a pickup truck, or swinging a golf club, you can do any of those things. Yeah. Yep. It's really upsetting to me in the world of talent. And you can yell at me if you want on this podcast. <laughs> um, but it's true to form that. It's true. It's easy. Yeah. Especially, have you ever listened to Chance the Rapper sing Hot in Here in country? No. Okay. So Chance the Rapper was on, like, Jimmy Fallon, and they were doing, like, that thing. Oh, yeah. The uh, game show roulette. Or, no. Song Song roulette. roulette. Yes. Yeah. And it was just, like, you have to sing Hot in Here in a country, like, as a country song. And Chance the Rapper may as well be Tommy McGuire. (laughs) And I'm like... Chance the Rapper has zero country talent, and he just blew every country singer out of the water. I'm sorry mm-hmm. if you're not Johnny Cash or Allison Krauss, you're shit. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's why my uh, karaoke song is Crazy by Patsy Cline. <laughs> um, Full truth over crazy. here. <laughs> Fun fact, that song was written by Willie Nelson. So. Get them braids on. <laughs> I don't know 
know why she chose golf because racial discrimination continued to be a problem. She likes uh, a rich white person's Many hotels still excluded people of color, and country club officials throughout the South and some in the North routinely refused to allow her to compete. And when she did compete, she was forced to dress for tournaments in her car because she was banned from the clubhouse. While she broke course records during individual rounds in several tournaments, uh, her highest ranking was 27th in 1966. So, like, she wasn't... So she's good. Yeah, she's good, but she wasn't the best, you know, but she's still doing good. And she has good, good games, bad games. Um, But also money was still not great for women in golf at this time. So although she was one of the LPGA's top 50 money uh, winners for five years, she even won a car at the Dinah Shore tournament. Her lifetime golf earnings never exceeded $25,000. She was in it for a while, like over a decade. She ended her golf career in 1978. So in the midst of her golf career, she did get married for the first time. She married her friend's brother, William, in 1965, but they got divorced in 76. Then in 1983, she married tennis coach Sidney Lewin. Uh, That marriage also ended in divorce after, I think, like three years. And that's literally all we know about her personal relationships. Married twice, divorced twice, no kids. That's all we know. <laughs> in 1976, she made it to the finals of an ABC television program called Superstars. This was a show which made professional athletes compete in their non-dominant sports. She finished first in basketball shooting and bowling, which makes me think she did beat Sugar Ray Robinson, so we can say that's canon. Let's call him. Um, and she was the runner-up in softball throwing. In 1972, she began running Pepsi-Cola's National Mobile Tennis Project, which brought portable nets and other equipment to underprivileged areas in major cities. She ran multiple other clinics and tennis outreach programs over the next three decades. In 1976, she was appointed New Jersey's Athletic Commissioner, the first woman in the country to hold such a role. But she resigned after one year due to a lack of autonomy. Uh, She didn't have any control over budgets or, you know, she didn't have any funding. And, you know, she's like, I'm basically doing nothing. She said, quote, I don't wish to be a figurehead. (laughs) In the late 1980s, she suffered two cerebral hemorrhages, followed by a stroke in 1992. Ongoing medical expenses left her in dire financial circumstances. She reached out to multiple tennis organizations being like hi i'm althea gibson (laughs) can you help me and none of them responded to her that's insane to me she was alone she had no money so she called her old friend angela buxton and she said i just wanted to say goodbye because she goes i i have to kill myself she was like i she's like i'm going to kill myself i don't i can't continue living i literally can't afford to live and i can't get any medical help because i'm i don't have any money this is like the very, end of very Rosa frustrating Parks's life like this shit happened at the end of her life yeah. it's very frustrating so angela of course swooped in and was like shut up i'm gonna help you <laughs> so she wrote an open letter to the tennis community in tennis publications, just like Angela, you know, Marble did. What's her name? Alice Marble Alice did all Marble. those years ago. 
And she published this article in Tennis Magazine that basically laid out the case and was like, we have a member who of our community who is dying and no one is helping her. So like, if you can give anything to help support Althea, please do. She raised a million dollars, like somewhere around there, a million dollars to help Althea. And this helped her live almost a decade longer. Shit. This was life-changing. Yeah. Life-saving. Life-saving, exactly. Um, she did have a stroke in 2003, and she passed away on September 28th, 2003, at the age of 76. Her legacy, obviously, still lives on in the tennis community. Right now, we are seeing perhaps the greatest tennis player of all time, Serena Williams, move away from her tennis career, and we can't help but think for a moment about Althea and her impact on Serena and Venus. I mean, she broke the barriers that allowed them to be the greatest of all time. It's amazing. Althea has been inducted into all sorts of halls of fame, including the Women's Hall of Fame and the Sports Hall of Fame. Her five Wimbledon trophies currently sit in the Smithsonian in D.C. And in 2019, a statue of her was erected at Flushing Meadows, the site of the U.S. Open. When the statue was unveiled, her old, her old friend, Angela Baxton, who was 85 years old, simply said, it's about bloody time. Damn. And that's the story of Althea Gibson. I'm so happy I know it like more in depth. Like, I mean, obviously I knew she was like a color barrier breaker for tennis, but it's really nice and to I, know how and what and the struggles. Yeah. And I also, I love that she wasn't Wimbledon champ right off the bat. Mm. And that was something that Alice Marble said in her letter. She goes, we might let her in and she might lose. But we should at least let her in because yeah. she's good enough to be in this competition. And I think that's important, too, because, like, of course, we love this story about, like, the person coming in, the outsider, and, you know, winning immediately. But it took her. I mean, her first, I think, Wimbledon was in, like, what, 1951? Mm-hmm. And she didn't win the singles until 57. Right. Like, that's a lot of time. And it's a lot of training. And... And it's a lot of her not being able to play in the best clubs against the best people. Yeah. She was playing in, you know, amateur tournaments for mm-hmm. a lot of her life. And, you know, she didn't have the training she needed. Yeah. So, and I just, I also, there's a part of me that so wishes that, like, she was playing in the time of Billie Jean King as well so that she could at least get the money that she was fucking owed. Mm-hmm. It kind of reminds me of Jim Thorpe. You know, Jim Thorpe was the known as the greatest athlete of all time, you know, so good. You know, if we covered men, I definitely want to cover him because he's very interesting <laughs> and died totally penniless, you know, because there were, he was not allowed to go professional. Hmm. And so he was like the greatest sports player and made no money right. and died in poverty. Like it sucked. And like had all of his Olympic titles stripped away. And like, I don't know. I, it's crazy. It just reminds me of that, of like, you know, especially with athletes a lot, we're like, good job. Okay, now go away. You know, like how Michael Phelps is also like, yeah, if it's not the Olympics, nobody really gives a shit about me. <laughs> like, <laughs> Unless you're from Baltimore. We love you. All right. But anyways, enough about this. I'm ready to get into some medieval history. New drink, new drink, new drink. <laughs> we'll be right back. 
for part two. Part two. Guinevere. I don't even know how to spell that. Me neither. (laughs) (laughs) And I've been researching her all week. Um, So I guess, are we starting with what you're drinking? Yeah, it looks delightful. This is called Queen Guinevere and the Knights of the Love Triangle. (laughs) (laughs) And it is... um, 30 milliliters are like two parts gin, one part vermouth, sweet vermouth. Um, you put in some sparkling blueberry kombucha, and then you put in tonic water and lime zest on top. Lime zest. I love zest. No lime juice, a lime wheel, and some lime zest. Love it. Cheers. Cheers. In a medieval goblet, mm-hmm. of course. Mmm. It's good. I really like that. Yeah. It's got a different taste to it. Yeah, I didn't I don't I didn't know what to expect from the blueberry kombucha, but it's good. Mm. I really like it. <laughs> kind of tart, kind of yeah. sweet, kind of sour, I don't but know. Like, I don't know, but everything kind of softens everything else. Like, I yeah, don't know towards the end. Yeah, it's just really nice. It's I good like intake. This. And the goblet's very important. Oh, that's the goblet's the perfect. <laughs> so tell me, what do you know about Guinevere, the queen of Camelot? Okay, so I think she's a mythical character from the Knights of the Round Table. Mm. I think she's involved with Sir Lancelot. Mm. Uh, <laughs> mm. But that's all I know. Okay. I don't know what other people are involved i don't know who these knights are i don't know if lancelot is a knight or if he's a king i don't know what's going on right okay so my sources (laughs) i don't either my sources i watched like a ted ed i watched queen guinevere and the women of the arthurian legends i watched guinevere the enchanting queen of camelot so there's like a lot going on uh in this story so i want to start with a brief history of King Arthur. Okay. Because I just wanted to give us like a basis for what's going on. Yeah. Cause I don't also don't know what King Arthur is about. Is he fictional? We don't know. Oh, interesting. Okay. Okay. So he and his legend was kind of like really formated in the middle ages, but actually his roots are a lot earlier hmm. in 410 AD. The Roman empire fell apart. And the Romans left Britain because the empire had gotten too big. They don't have enough money. So the Roman Empire is finally breaking up. Um, so they leave. And then all these like Germanic and Saxon invaders are trying to like swoop in and take over the British Isles. Um, they fought back, but there's a big struggle. And there's hardly any written records from that area. Mm-hmm. But the Arthur legend is from the Celtic and like Saxon people on okay. the British Isles. So, but there's nothing written. So number one thing we have, we do have some poems from that area. The first one Arthur is mentioned in is called the Gadadin. And the quote in that poem says, Guillard was skilled at slaying his enemies, but he was no Arthur. Oh. So that's a phrase. So he's... People are already being compared to him. Right. So this is like 400 AD and people are already like, oh, but he's not an Arthur. Oh, fascinating. Very early. Um, 
based on poetry that he was mentioned in though in the celtic area he would have been a warrior not a king searching for religious relics so that's right yeah because in the story he's looking for the holy grail yeah the chalice that's holding the wine but Mm -hmm. it's like that's because he was kind of written during the crusades like later on okay so that's step one we know he's in poems in celtic islands then in 13 or 1130 almost more than 500 years later this little cleric of mammoth writes what's a book called the history of the kings of britain he used celtic and irish sources and it is like the centerpiece of that book is king arthur oh okay so it's like a quote history it's 600 years after arthur would have existed it uses real dates and real battles but mixes in myth and legend interesting so arthur is kind of getting mixed in with what's real and what's not real this is also where we get merlin as a wise advisor we also get a fancy sword which is not called excalibur yet and we get his castle in camelot which is not called camelot yet but we're getting there. <laughs> okay. So then three, the book is translated from Latin to French 25 years later. And that's when we get the addition of the round table. Like all my booze are going to be equal with me. Time to sit down. And then another French guy named Cretan Detroit writes a series of romances that shoot to the top of the Middle Ages bestseller list. <laughs> Oprah's like, this is my favorite things. We get the stories of individual knights like Lancelot. We get their connections with Guinevere and Arthur's relationship with Guinevere. And we're introduced to the Holy Grail because it's during the Crusades. So this is like story upon story upon story. story. And it keeps going. In the 1400s, Sir Thomas Mallory synthesized all these stories into a series of books. And that's where most of our modern accounts come from so it started with poems from the 400s and a thousand years later we have the stories that we base arthur legends on i feel like this would be if someone was trying to track back from like the percy jackson series be like we have these series but then we know that they were from like greek mythology that like happened that but like if someone didn't really know where exactly they came from exactly and then like the lines get so blurred of like truth and reality. Well, the problem gets even more blurred. Wait, truth and fiction. Yeah, truth and fiction. <laughs> the problem gets even more blurred because a guy named King Henry the Seventh was young when he was a leader, and he had people trace the new Tudor line back to King Arthur to prove oh. that the Tudors were the kings of England. And then King Henry VIII, also being young and married to his brother's wife, had uh, a round table delivered and said it was his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather's. Ah! <laughs> He's ripped the price tag off of it really table. quick. <laughs> it is still hanging in the uh, Windsor Castle. The this, table? The fake round table from Henry It's still VIII. in the castle. Yes, but it has Did he pour been... coffee on it to age it? I wish. <laughs> it is. It, it was carbon dated. I think they did find a round table, but it was dated back to the 1100s when Arthur would have existed in the 400s. So it is a fucking old round table. Yeah. But it's not 
Arthur's round table if Arthur's a real person. So I needed to start with that. Now Arthur's out of the way. Okay. But he's also going to be in this whole story. So I could not figure out the best way to tell this story because Guinevere is not a central figure. Mm -hmm. So what I did is I traced all of the women in all the Arthurian legends and I'm making a through line of the women. Okay. And Guinevere's one of them. I think she's the most important one of them. But I am hoping this makes sense at the end. Okay. Because I did a lot of splicing. I'm ready for it. Okay. (sighs) (laughs) The women I'm going to be focusing on are E. Grain, which is Arthur's mother, Morgan Le Fay, who is his half-sister, Guinevere, who is his wife, Princess Elaine, who is Lancelot's kind of lover, and Nimue, who is the Lady of the Lake. Ooh, the Lady of the Lake. Uh, ding, 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 because that series is being filmed in Baltimore. I I drove by the crew the other day because they were across the street from my parents' house. Yeah. <gasps> but this is like the first Very Lady exciting. of the Lake. The, the first. Fancy Lady Not of Natalie the lake. Portman. No. Natalie Portman is the Baltimore Lady of the Lake. Yeah, which is currently being, uh, was it, extorted for like $50,000. Yeah, gross. By, <laughs> quote, Baltimore locals. Right. Because <laughs> we're crazy. I was like, I hate this city. <laughs> Leave Natalie alone. (sighs) All right. So let's start with Arthur's parents. Romans abandoned the islands when their kingdom kind of fell apart. It was ruled by dozens of rival kings, and the Saxons are threatening to come in and take control. Christianity is on the rise. Constantine is like, oh, this is a real religion. It's not just like Jewish light. And they are trying to tamper the pagan worship. So our story begins with the Duke of Cornwall and his wife named Egraine, who Egraine, e- who ends up being Arthur's mother. She has three daughters with the Duke, the youngest of which is sent to Merlin for her magical education. Of course, Ooh. this is a lesson in pagan worship. Mm-hmm. She becomes Morgan Le Fay, or in many stories, the fairy, <gasps> the most powerful king in the area. His name is Uther. He becomes consumed with passion for Egraine, Arthur's mother. He invites her and her husband, the Duke, to court, but they refuse. They're like, we don't trust this bad boy. We're <laughs> not going over there. So this king asks Merlin for some help. He goes, Merlin, I really want to bang this lady. <laughs> so can you please like help me out? And Merlin's like, okay, but if you do, if I do, you have to give me your firstborn son. <gasps> and Uther's like, sure. So they go into battle against the Duke. Uther kills him, but then nobody tells Egrain, and Uther shows up, but he's like, Merlin, before I show up, can you just, like, disguise me as her husband so I can get in a quick bang? So Merlin's like, sure, I'm just going to make you this guy. (gasps) Merlin. I know, Merlin, right? Helping kill dads and rape women since 01. So Uther goes in, has sex with Egrain, and um, she figures out the deception eventually, but she's pissed, and now she's pregnant, so she can't really do anything except for marry this guy. She has nothing else to do. Her husband's dead. She had sex with this other guy, and she's pregnant. So Arthur is born, and Uther's like, oh, by the way, we have to give this baby to Merlin. This is like a crazy mix of, like, Bathsheba and Rumpelstiltskin. Exactly correct. What's going exactly on? Exactly correct. <laughs> So now Merlin is in charge of Arthur. 
Oh. This is very Samson, right? Yes. Like give him to the church. This is an interesting thing because I do feel like it's, it's biblical. It's reminiscent of so many biblical stories. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like my brain synapses are going crazy. Exactly. With memories of Pastor Sandbeck. It is. <laughs> and, like, so now Arthur, this young kingly boy, is being raised by a wizard, a sorcerer. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Okay. She does have her three older daughters from husband number one. She has her daughter, Egraine, has her daughter or her son, Arthur, with Uther. And then she has another daughter named Morgos. So so Arthur has one full sister and three half sisters. Okay. And that's it. Uther sends the three stepchildren to a convent. He's Ooh. like, let's get rid of these bitches. Okay. Where LaFay keeps practicing and learning magic. I'm sorry, who's LaFay again? Le- one of the original daughters? LaFay is one of the original daughters. Okay. The youngest of which, and the one that was sent to Merlin to learn magic when she was a baby. Okay. So she's kind of like the pre Arthur. So she's Arthur's half sister. And she's magical. But sh- and she's magical. Mm-hmm. Very cool. I like Morgan LaFay. We like LaFay. <laughs> We love LaFay. We'll talk so much about LaFay. Um, but she obviously, at this point, now she's at a convent. Uh-huh. Her father is dead. Her mother's been raped. And now Arthur is living with Merlin where she used to live. She oh, fucking hates she these pissed. people. She okay. hates them. Okay. She has every right to. Of course. God. She's been tragically hurt. Okay, so Uther dies, Egrain dies, he was the strongest king, his wife was the queen, Brittany is in chaos, um, and Arthur's nearly a man. And Merlin's like, okay, the kings are dead, I gotta come up with a plan. I'm gonna take the sword, I'm gonna put it in a stone, I'm gonna invite <gasps> everybody to come try to take the sword out of the stone. It's gonna be fine. Just the holiest person can take the sword out. We all know little baby Arthur, barely 18, shows up, is the only person who can move the sword, and he is declared the king of England, the great king of England. And so we're clear, this young, holier-than-thou Arthur, with two dead parents, raised by a wizard, with three crazy-ass siblings, with a vendetta, is the guy. Okay. (laughs) He's the guy. I think that Merlin greased that sword. He greased it up. He was like, <laughs> I want my baby boo to pull it out. He lubricated the sword <laughs> pre, pre-Arthur pre pulling. <laughs> like, don't worry, Arthur. I got the KY. I have I'm just going to slip it on real quick. Wow. Okay. Problem. Okay. Okay. One of the men who was there that day was Lord Leodegrance. He's Guinevere's dad. Okay. And he was like, I swear my fealty to you king boy okay and he is like but i need some help in return like i gotta fend these boys off of my territory because they're all all these like germanic invaders are trying to come in and take my daughter my hot hot daughter uh-huh. and he's like i'll absolutely come help you and merlin's like please don't do that that's a terrible idea <laughs> um but arthur goes helps win the battle um and then uh Leodegretz is like Come to my party. Merlin's like, please don't go. That's a bad idea. (laughs) Um, But Arthur goes and parties, passes out in bed, wakes up in the middle of the night, and hears somebody playing the harp. Beautiful, beautiful harp. He gets up, wanders around, finds this beautiful woman by herself playing the harp alone in her room. And he's like, oh, my God, she's so hard. And Merlin, like, pops up, and he's like, don't talk to her. And he's like, hey, 
my name's oh Arthur. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and she's like, I'm Guinevere. I'm so cute. She's Guinevere. This is Guinevere. Guinevere playing the harp. Okay. This guy's daughter. And Arthur goes to her dad and is like, I'm so, so sorry that um, I know I came here in the first place to fend off the warriors who were trying to take your daughter, but also I really want to bang your daughter. <laughs> and then this guy's like, sure. Like, he's so happy that Arthur wants to marry Guinevere. Guinevere has no choice in this. We don't know anything about her choices here. So in ancient, in ancient Welsh, Guinevere means white enchantress or ghost. She's not often painted as a good figure. Really? People paint her as the woman who broke up the round table. But I'm going to so set that the Yoko right ono. today. She's the Yoko Ono. I didn't know that. The round table. Interesting. So her family was descended from ancient Romans. Like I said, Romans had come to the island, but then left, but some people stayed. So her beauty was very different from the other Northwestern European women. She had raven hair and looked Mediterranean. So reason number one to not trust her is she's ethnic okay that's the first thing but she's also fucking hot yeah <laughs> okay merlin decides you're crazy she's bad news you need extra protection let's go to nimue the lady in the lake we're gonna walk over to the lake do, 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 do. we go there arthur's standing there the sun goes down and the sorceress pops up and hands him an enchanted sword this is excalibur that's excalibur mm -hmm. okay this is excalibur it's going to bring him strength and victory and as long as he keeps the little sheath thing on his side he can't die from its wounds good to know okay so arthur goes back to camelot he's got to wait a year to marry guinevere i don't know why he has to marry a year but he has to kind of sit there. He's mm -hmm. in his castle. It's a rainy night. It's a very Beauty and the Beast situation. Mm -hmm. A woman shows up, hot as hell. <laughs> and she's like, hey, like, it's a really late night. Can I please have a bed? And he's like, you can share my bed. Oh, <laughs> you my know, because Arthur's being wild. Uh -huh. um, and in the morning, the woman vanishes. About a year later, Guinevere and Arthur are going to get married, and Merlin's walking around looking nervous and stressed as shit, and he's like, all three of your half-sisters are riding here on their horses right now. Two of the half-sisters are coming to play nice, but Morgan Le Fay is pissed, and she's mm -hmm. holding a little baby. And Arthur's like, who's that? And he's like, well, remember that rainy night? Your actual sister, Morgoes, was that woman, and you fucked her and got her pregnant, oh. and now this is your baby, you idiot, and Ugh. I am raising him. Wait, his, he fucked his half-sister? No, his whole his sister. Whole sister. Gross. And they have this baby that Morgan Le Fay, his half-sister sorceress, is raising. Ugh. And Merlin's like, watch out for that baby boy because he's going to murder you. He's going <laughs> to murder you one day. Surreal. Your Icar son. No, what is it? Not Icarus. The boy is going to Oedipus situation. Mm -hmm. So now it's an Oedipus situation. So Egrain is dead. Morgan Le Fay is delivering babies of nieces and nephews. <sighs> Things are happening here. <gasps> Guinevere and Arthur get married. Okay. And they're happy. But they remain childless. This is another very interesting thing in the book and another thing that is like a tick against her. Not only is she 
kind of sort of ethnic, but she's a childless woman queen. Her father then gives, after the wedding, Arthur the round table. This is her family heirloom. The round table is her dad's. Oh, my God. It is not Arthur's. And this is very frustrating to me. <laughs> that is frustrating. It should be Guinevere and the Knights of the Round Table, mm-hmm. which there have been several um, fiction books now that have been written with Guinevere being the one who got the sword out of the stone, this, that, and the other. Love it, love it. It's great. Okay. The court and the round table become really, really popular, and knights flock to Camelot. They're coming. They're like, we're a super popular crew. We want to be the best knights ever. Merlin disappears. He's like, you don't need me anymore. And Morgan Lafay sticks around to foil all the great knights. She's great at that. She's yeah. like, I'm his older half sister. I'm gonna be a bitch. <laughs> she also becomes the chief of these nine women who are the powerful sorceress women in the region including the Lady of the Lake, and they cure disease, they control the seas, they transform into animals, they see the future, and she fucking hates Arthur. Hates him. So one day, Guinevere and Arthur are married, everything's cool, cool, cool. The Lady in the Lake shows up with a young man warrior who's hoping to be a knight, and his name is Lancelot. Ugh, he's the Jacob to the Edward. Lancelot. He comes in and um, the lady in the lake is like, Merlin gave me this child a long time ago and said, raise this boy to be Arthur's greatest knight. And he is. He lives in the court. He's not only a great knight, but he is a constant companion of the king, i.e. his best friend. Mm. Lancelot is his best friend friend and he also befriends Guinevere they spend so much time together and Arthur has business at a town to take care of and they grow to respect each other and admire each other and she's charming and beautiful and he saves her in all these damsel in distress situations but they couldn't consummate their relationship and Lancelot is tortured by the platonic nature of it and also the guilt that he doesn't only like love the queen, but loves his best friend's girl, like his best friend's girl, Jesse's girl. Yeah, she's got it going on. <laughs> <laughs> it's like really upsetting to him. Lancelot's really sad, so he takes his leave. He's like, "I'm gonna go on a knight's quest." Okay, I'm gonna go on a quest and like cool off for a bit. So he goes to this castle, kills a dragon. The princess of this cast, the princess of this castle, falls in love with Lancelot, of course. Um, But he's like, sorry, my heart is somewhere else. Now, her name is Princess Elaine. She then goes and begs a sorceress for a magical ring to disguise herself as Guinevere. Wow. People just be drinking polyjuice potion left and right in this story. My God. It's insane. She invites, as Guinevere, Lancelot to her bed. They have sex, which obviously he knows it's not Guinevere. She's like 10 cities away. Right. But and also, ne- like, he knows that that's a no-no. Yeah. But the next morning, he finds out it isn't Guinevere. And he's so filled with anger. He's like, Elaine, I'm going to kill you. But she's like, I'm pregnant. Which, how does she know the next day? I don't know. <laughs> People in the Middle Ages were wild with their stories. Um, but he goes back to Camelot. And Princess Elaine follows him. But she just ignores him. Elaine. The- ignores him. The whole, like, he ignores her the whole time she's there. But she disguises herself again at the castle. And that night, Guinevere is so happy. He's back. 
She's like, oh, my God, Lancelot's back. He went on his journey. He killed the dragon. Everything's cool. She walks into his chamber, and Lancelot is sleeping with her. <gasps> but it's not her. Like, so she sees Elaine posing as herself. <laughs> That's so fucking trippy. It's so crazy. And Lancelot freaks out, jumps out the window naked, ah! runs away going crazy, and Elaine returns home and finds Lancelot still naked in her garden raving mad. And she's like, you know what will make you better? My dad has the Holy Grail. <laughs> you want to see it? And he's like... You know what the cure is for... Uh- <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Whatever the fuck just happened. <laughs> the chalice that Jesus drove from. <laughs> drunk from. That solves everything. Katie, it's a batter. Oh, for a little bit. It, uh, it's a batter. So, <laughs> so, I hated how you said that. <laughs> Is it the way you say dollars? Say dollars. Dollars? You. Don't what do you say mean? Dollars like that. How do I say it? When dollars? You, yeah. <laughs> you want me to say dollars? That's how you say it when you're telling stories and every time Is I it go, really? <laughs> Listen, I didn't know that about myself. I actually think it's really adorable. I don't think it's annoying. I think it's cute. God. But you say it with an accent. I didn't know. It's fun. Now you know. Now I'm self-conscious. It's the same, it's the same way I go. It's about us. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome to Self-Conscious Corner. Woo! My whole life. Okay. <laughs> All right. Where are we? Um, okay. He's going to drink out of the grail to make his crazy obsession with Guinevere go away. He drinks out of it. He actually becomes a good guy for a little bit. Elaine okay. has his child. He stays and lives with her and like tries to raise this baby, but eventually becomes overwhelmed with regret and obsession and goes back to Camelot and is like, Arthur, I need to confess to you that I love your wife. But Guinevere has not slept with him. Okay. He, so they're he totally... has slept with fake Guinevere twice, <laughs> but she has never Okay. With Lancelot. Yet. Um, Lancelot's talking to Arthur. And while this happens, a barge comes into Camelot. And I shit you not, Elaine is dead of a broken heart. Okay. Elaine's okay. crazy. I'm not the biggest fan of Elaine. I'm going to be honest. <laughs> Princess Elaine is wild. Like, don't toad after this man. All right. Elaine. He's only a knight. Okay. He's not even a prince. Do you remember it? In the hit romantic comedy, uh, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. <laughs> I yes. feel like Elaine is the best friend in this scenario that the article is, like, inspired by, yeah. a.k.a. Catherine Hahn. Right. A.k.a. the person from the witch movie. You know what I'm talking about. I do. And Marvel Universe. Marvel Universe. Not witch. the Scarlet Witch. Scarlet the is other Scarlet Witch, Scarlet but witch she's is the other witch. The Olsen. She's, like, the Got Onyx it. witch. Mm-hmm. Catherine Hahn's character. Anyways, she's the, remember she's crying. Remember Catherine yeah. Hahn was in How to Lose a Guy in Ten Days. She was. She she's was so good. A queen. Where am I going with this? Elaine is the Catherine Hahn of How to Lose a Guy in Ten Days. Too clingy. Too clingy. Too much. Uh, girlfriend, don't find a man who you love. Find a man who loves who f- you for who you are. Yeah. And you also should love him too. But, and, you know, but she's don't... she's a princess and she's going for a knight. Like, find a boy. Find a real boy. I'm also going to quote TLC. Don't go chasing waterfalls. Mm-mm. Stick to the rivers and the streams that you're, that used, you're used to. you're used to. Of course. Honey, this man does not love you. Rest in peace, you Left can... Eye Lopez. 
Mwah. Mwah. <laughs> I love her. We should also definitely cover her. <laughs> yes. She burned on a house. So anyways, but yeah, I feel like she, Elaine is out of pocket right mm-hmm. now. She is. Um, and now she's dead. And on now a barge. she's dead on a barge. But Lancelot gets back. And he's like, yo, guys, I found the Holy Grail. P.S. 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 Got it. guys, got it. Um, But all these knights are like, okay, let's go get it. Let's go get on a quest. So they're all looking around for it. But like, you have to. What? I thought you had it. No, no, no. Elaine, it's Elaine's dad's. That's how he got to drink out of it. So they're all like, well, let's go fucking get it. And then it's like, you have to be pure of heart to drink out of it. Blah, blah, blah. But anyway, the knight that ends up getting it is Galahad, which is Lancelot and Elaine's son. So, Galahad. I only know him from Money Python. Well, we're, I'll talk about them later. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, story has everything. Galahad does end up getting being the only person to ever, besides Jesus, drink out of the Holy and Indiana Jones <laughs> to, drink, <laughs> to drink out of the Holy. Jehovah Girl. starts with an I. <laughs> Don't call me Junior. I <laughs> love that I've stolen that joke from your family. Indiana's the I dog's name. Can't. I want you to only steal it from my family. <laughs> uh, you are a bonus in-law. It's fine <laughs> to them. To me, you're an actual in-law. <laughs> okay, so. Lancelot had been denied taking the Holy Grail because him and Guinevere did eventually have an adulterous relationship. Okay. On her daily horse rides through the meadow that I guess you take as a queen, they would (laughs) meet up and have, you know, talks, sometimes sexual relationships, sometimes just like just being together. Not gonna lie, it sounds hot. Super hot. I'm here for these horse rides. Yeah, like (laughs) let's make out in the meadow. But... Arthur's son that LaFay raised eventually like tips Arthur off and is like you need to go find Guinevere at this point. That little bastard. Little bastard. Um, And Arthur is heartbroken by the betrayal of his wife and his best friend and his like son reminds him that the punishment for adultery is being burned at the stake. Oh no. So Lancelot escapes but Guinevere is <gasps> captured by the knights and tied to a pyre and is ready to be burned and at the last minute Lancelot rides up finds his way to her fights off all the other knights and takes her away they go to Lancelot's castle bad hiding place yeah and the knights come and lay siege to it and (gasps) the knights all of Arthur's knights die fighting each other really not all of them but they they're killing each other over the queen which is really sad. That is sad. They do eventually come to an agreement where Guinevere has to return to Camelot and Arthur and Lancelot has to go into exile in France. But Arthur cannot let go how pissed he is. So he leaves to pursue Lancelot. And when he leaves, his son takes over. He was trained by a sorceress and he declares himself king and says, Guinevere, I'm going to marry you, dear stepmom. <gasps> Very Henry VIII's kind of situation. Yes, super gross. And she's like, no, dude. I just almost got murdered for that. So, like, maybe chill. No, thanks. So she leaves and escapes and goes to a convent. She's like, this is where I need to be. Because apparently men in the Middle Ages only wrote women in convents. It's like female prison. It is. Basically. Terrible. Unless you were. Just kidding. It's uh, not prison. But unless like, you were Q+. They plus, did, They did like to be there. A lot of women who were Q+, plus really liked being in a convent. Yeah. Okay. Arthur yeah, some has, people really liked it. it was a really good place for safe haven for but for women. some like but for, 
promiscuous women, it was. It was. It was prison treatment. Yeah. So Arthur heads home. Uh, and he has this dream, like, don't go home and fight your son. Bad decision. Make a truce. But while they're standing on the battlefield, one of his son's army men gets bitten by, like, a snake. And he Ugh. goes to slice it with his sword. So then people on Arthur's side think they're trying to fight. So when the battle breaks out, blah, blah, blah. Arthur runs, races, stabs his son in the heart. This kid stabs Arthur back. And they're both dying. And then they're like, oh, Arthur's like, take this sword from the lake and me back to the lake. That's super important for some reason. And they go and they put Arthur on a boat with his sword and all the sorceress women and they float away and the legend promises in Brit in Britain's greatest hour of need Arthur will return. So that's the Arthur. Did you know that shit? No, <laughs> Allie, I'm an idiot. I've never heard any of this. That's fucking crazy. So they have fake tombstones. Well, we think we know it's a symbolic tombstone for Arthur. People say Guinevere is buried next to him. Arthur, it's like the king that was, the king that will be. That's what it says on the tombstone in fucking England because he, like, raised himself from the dead, is away on a crazy fucking island until they need him. What? Yeah, and Guinevere is dead in the ground next to him, apparently. But I like the spookiness of this. It's very spooky. It's very fun. You can visit all the Arthur locations. Like, they exist in England. This exists. It's just we don't know whether or not the people are real. Okay. So Lancelot, after Arthur dies, rides to Guinevere to see her at the convent, but she's consumed by guilt. She's like, I'm the reason the knights fell apart. I'm the reason the kingdom fell apart. I'm the reason my husband died. I'm the reason my stepson died. Like, this is fucking shit. I'm living my rest, the rest of my life as a nun. And Lancelot also lives his life, the rest of his life, just kind of chill. Um, and then when Guinevere dies, he buries her next to Arthur's symbolic grave and this is all about a punishment for sex so what we know is that since then the evolution has been crazy poems movies theater books like arthur and guinevere and lancelot are everywhere but for the women guinevere and morgan lefay specifically have been cast in so many roles they have been holy women they have been the best women in all of britain history they have been temptresses they have been tragic lovers and it always depends on when the story was written uh -huh. so uh it's always pictured in the high middle ages which is not when they existed and it's set on the southwest coast of england when Guinevere was originally written in the story, the Queen of France was very powerful, and the guy who was writing it is French, and she was a dynamic woman. So she spent a great deal of time in the court of Aquitaine, meaning the court of love, where her gestures would retell her over and over the stories of King Arthur. In these stories, Morgan Le Fay was a healer who would frequently help King Arthur and his knights with their problems. But this was also the first time that we were given the love triangle. Other Arthurs have justified Guinevere's unfaithfulness by having Arthur cheat on her with several other women. This made her a much more sympathetic character. People were like, oh, if he's cheating too, it makes more sense. And honestly, it was more true to form for the time period. Because one thing we know about Guinevere is that she was barren. So she did not have to follow the same rules of other women who were scared about getting pregnant. Arthur could cheat and so could she. 
One poem has her mother appearing and telling her dead mother, Egrin, or not her dead mother, Egrin's Arthur's dead mother, but Guinevere's dead mother appearing and telling us that she's condemned to suffer with her sins of adultery and pride and that she is seen as a destroyer of the round table. Eleanor of Castile, real person, was a uh-huh. huge Arthur and Guinevere fan and loved to emphasize the similarities between her and her husband and Arthur and Guinevere and actually said that she found their graves and had a funeral for them that had never been had. Sir Thomas Mallory, who I mentioned earlier, wrote 21 books about them with 507 chapters. This is the most referenced Arthur But also, his female characters were clearly written in misogyny, Uh which was a typical timeline of the time, but also his personal views, because twice in his life he was accused of rape. Oh, gross. He wrote Guinevere as somebody who trapped Arthur with her magic, while the blameless Arthur was a victim to her prey. He wrote Morgan Le Fay as a crazy, wild sorceress who tortured him for no reason. Yeah, this guy just, like, hates women. He hates them, and he's the one we get our stories from. I hate that. I hate him. It's troublesome. And then, as I said earlier in the show, the Henrys, the the Tudors, decided that they were going to publicly connect in the 1400s their lineage to the round table. And it is still on display in Windsor Castle. During the Renaissance, people stopped liking the Middle Ages. They were like, no, science is where it's at. I need science. I need fashion. But then after the Renaissance, we get the Victorian era. And in the Victorian era, people loved fucking old shit. They were (laughs) like, this is so (laughs) fun. So there's all these new books. We have the um, British book called The Isles of the King. And then we have the satire by Mark Twain called The Connecticut and Yankee in King Arthur's Court. So everybody's into it. Guinevere, Morgan Le Fay, and the Lady in the Lake are favorite subjects of pre-Raphael painters. So they were brought to life in great detail. And the same is true of the 20th century. But the thing that's fun about the 20th century is that while these women were bringers of love and chaos, more recently they've been given stories of agency. Mm. Guinevere has been played by Julie Andrews, Lena Headley, Kira Knightley, and Kate Dickey. Morgan Le Fay in Disney's Sword in the Stone was Madame Mim. <gasps> no! Yes. I love Madame Mim! So fun. <laughs> She's also been played by Helen Mirren and Juliana Margulies. Monty Python and the Holy Grail has the lady in the lake and the quote about her, her <laughs> strange women lying in ponds, handing out swords is no basis for a system of government. <laughs> I also agree. Yeah. (laughs) But she has been played by Isabella Rossellini Ah. and Catherine Langdon. Love Isabella Rossellini. (laughs) But the importance of Guinevere is much farther reached than this. What we know is that in each rebirth of the Arthurian legend, we have general structure and dynamics and the power struggles that were there at that time. When the love stories were brought into this legend, it was because a French writer was writing for noble, educated French women who wanted agency and wanted to see themselves in a story. These women were parts of arranged marriages to old men, but were surrounded daily by young military men 
and courtiers who they were lusting for. All their husbands had mistresses, but because of pregnancy, they had to be really careful. So in enters Lancelot. He is a newcomer to the knights. He's young. He was raised by a woman on her own. He's not burly. He's not beardy like the other guys. He's smart. He's good in a ballroom. He's loyal and mm. he's friendly. These women wanted to believe that they had agency to choose a husband mm. and that they would have respect of a kingdom if they did so. And they wanted to choose to fall in love with a man that loved them until they died. So unknowingly, while men thought they were writing Guinevere as the downfall of Camelot, they were really painting her as a woman who made her own choices. Mm. And as that, she had the power to cheat on her husband. And she is the first respected woman to do so. <gasps> and that... I love it! Is the story of Guinevere <laughs> and all the surrounding men and ladies. God, I love her. The first <laughs> woman to openly cheat on her husband and everybody be like, all right. And also, I think it's maybe I'm just a fucking idiot. I don't know. But like, I don't think of her as an adulteress. No, because she loved Lancelot. Yeah. And I yeah, I like knew that there's something about her with like Lancelot and Arthur, but I didn't know that it was a uh, love triangle situation. So that's interesting. (gasps) All right. So now we need to talk about these two ladies together in conversation. Actually, a lot of ladies, because you had a lot of women in your story. I know. I couldn't, <laughs> one of your story wasn't robust enough. No, but I love that you put in all these other ladies, because I I really love uh, Morgana. What was, I'm sorry. What was uh, Morgan Le Fay. Morgan Le Fay. I love her. Her half-sister. Yeah, so, she's wild. All right. Let's talk about these two women in conversation with each other in a little segment we like to call Just the Two of Us. Okay, I, it's really interesting. I'm comparing Harlem to Camelot. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting thing. What kind of similarities and differences do you see? I just see a really iconic town that Uh has a lot of people that flocked there to Mm -hmm. be part of the message. And I also think that they are places that are romanticized, Mm. you know? And I was feeling that way with Harlem in my research this week because every time we've talked about it, it's been like this magical place that had no problems and people didn't experience racism like they did other places. But also there were other problems as there are in any society. Oh, sure. You know, and I'm thinking about how Camelot is seen as this place that like, it was like this mythical, wonderful place where kind of like, uh, I don't even know, like the way we rule was formed. It was very you know? utopian. Yeah, because I mean, even... You know, and it's interesting because the other thing that comes to mind when I think of Camelot is JFK and Jackie O because their White House situation was called Camelot. Mm. And it's this thing that is very gilded on the outside, very lovely, but has a lot of internal problems that are destroying it from the inside out. Right. You know, and I think that both of these stories had that, you know, we have. Guinevere and all these other women who are disenfranchised in Camelot (laughs) and they don't have any agency. Mm -mm. And we had Althea growing up in this environment where like she was abused. She was not treated well. She is, you know, not in a safe environment in her neighborhood. (laughs) And yet we want to think of this time in this space as only good things. Yeah. But it just wasn't, you know, but it's important to also look at these people that come out of the, of the bad and do good. 
Well, I was surprised in both stories that I felt like it's like you, there wasn't a big story for each of these women, but it's yeah. like you told me exactly what I needed to know, mm -hmm. and that's that she didn't matter. <sighs> Althea worked her fucking hardest, was a great athlete, and at the end of the day, there was no system in place for female athletes or black female athletes to have sponsorship or careers. Yeah. And the same is true of the women in Camelot. It's like, no matter what I do, no matter how long I do it, mm -hmm. no matter if I'm in love or not, there is no system in place for me to be a successful woman. Yeah. Like I'm thinking about how like Guinevere's birthright was the round table and yet it is not attributed to her whatsoever. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and Althea Gibson could have been known as the greatest athlete of all time, but she just wasn't invested in enough, you know, like people around her invested in her, like small investments to like get her where she needed to go. But ultimately she couldn't even make a career enough in professional sports to well, make it, which is upsetting because it's like, you think about like sports players now make, millions upon billions of dollars just for playing and like mm. Althea had to take part-time jobs as an elevator operator to right. be a professional athlete at the top of her game and it rubs me the wrong way that because of like the way like she wasn't a gracious loser but like mm -hmm. whatever but people are like oh but she is not a role model for black people because she's not speaking out in the way we want her to right and people think that about Guinevere like oh she cheated on her husband so she's like you know, a, a darkened woman. Like she's right. not the role model we need when they're both exactly the role model we need. They're powerhouses who took what they wanted and wouldn't accept less. Yeah. There's a type of guilt that we're putting on both of these women for various reasons that I don't think that they deserve, mm. you know, and I think it's unfair to put that on them. And, you know, I think for Guinevere, it ultimately ended and she was feeling so guilty. She joined a convent and like, you know, kind of recused herself from society. And I felt, felt like we had a similar thing with Althea. She's like, I can't play professional sports anymore. Like, I can't be the queen of tennis anymore because, frankly, like, I'm not making it funny. And people want me to be this spokesperson that I'm just not. She's like, isn't it enough that I'm just fucking doing it? Like, you know, and it's frustrating. She's like, why do I have to be this thing why do I have to say everything exactly correct while I'm also trying to play this sport to the best of my ability? Right. And I feel like Guinevere is doing like the same thing. Like she's like, I just want to be like happy and I want to be happy with Lancelot and I fucking can't because I'm married to Arthur. And now like, you know, it's just, they want to be living their lives in the way that they should be able to, but they're just not allowed. And they both leave their occupation because of it because of these pressures they leave their occupation because of it yeah and they also i think they both started out as these really strong powerful women mm -hmm. who looked at this other thing and like for althea it was like i feel like tennis looks like this weak woman's mm -hmm. sport like i remember you saying that like mm -hmm. it's not really a strong woman thing and i think guinevere was raised as a princess to a really 
like powerful lord who had a round table who like was fighting off people who were mm-hmm. trying to marry her and i think she stepped into a role that she felt was too small for her and i think althea yeah. gibson did the same thing well, and to be clear they were kind of found and put in that role right because, against their permission yeah because i was thinking about the moment where arthur walks in on her playing the harp and he's like told not to do it but he does it anyway and i'm thinking about the moment where like althea is seen playing paddle ball and someone is like you could be something great mm. so it's taking this woman like finding this talented woman and then putting her in a box and be like great you're smart you're talented you're athletic whatever you are and now you can do this one thing. You can be the queen. You can be a professional, underpaid tennis player. <laughs> and I think both these women are like, but I could do more. Like, because why were, can't I do more? <laughs> they were used. Yes, they were used. Which is so frustrating for me because even like King Henry VIII, who beheaded, mm-hmm. cheated on, disrespected, and distrusted his wives, was using the legacy uh-huh. of their family for himself Mm -hmm. and that's what a lot of the tennis associations were doing they were like look at our black person that we care about Mm -hmm. he's saying look at my past but what he's not taking into account is that Guinevere never had kids so he was never a true king yeah if he wanted to be the legitimate king Mm -hmm. of Arthur Arthur didn't have any legitimate children so there is no line so you're a fucking liar yeah I thought it was interesting too that both of these women were childless and they were you know obviously Althea was a black woman and (laughs) Guinevere was seen as kind of ethnic you know maybe ethnic you know so it made them both different they were othered for sure they were very othered and in each way that like, you know, like it never was that like a woman could be, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? And so they not only stood out for how they chose to live their lives, but also the things that they couldn't control, mm-hmm. which is very interesting to me. Yeah. And uh, I think the childless thing is interesting too, because there's a kind of love affair we have with the idea of legacy and passing things on and like, you know, this almost eugenic style thing of like, Oh, but like you want like your traits to like be passed on to the next generation. And like, it almost seems like, but Althea, like you're, you're so talented, like athletically, like you could have passed that on, you know? And like, there's this lamenting about powerful women being childless. And it's like, yes, but that's also all you're valuing me for is the things that I can pass on through having children, you know? And it's kind of, I think it's kind of, wonderful that they're just like no I am who I am and I we chose to live our lives in this way and obviously I don't know if Guinevere could have children I don't know if Althea could but neither of them did it and I kind of like then that it makes them exist as this singular entity of no I just was and it also is interesting to me that you brought up the Kennedys mm-hmm. because one of Jackie's problems was that Jack was such a cheater. Mm-hmm. And I just like, I find it interesting that Arthur had a child before her mm-hmm. and Lancelot had a child, mm-hmm. but she didn't, which means that there is something happening with the men that she's having sex with. Yeah. That, you know, I, and maybe these, 
medieval authors are just trying to be like, she's a childless woman. She's garbage. Like she shouldn't have been queen. But also maybe people were like, this is a story where men are kind of polluting her vagina, which we've seen happen in real life. Oh yeah. I just kept thinking about it a lot. And it happened with King Henry the eighth. Yes. And he owned, he was like, yeah, I own this life. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I thought about it a lot because I just, um, I know today we're very like, I don't want kids and I'm cool with that. And people are going to pressure you on it, but like it is what it is. But as a queen in the 400s, that was, you you were a literal chalice. Yeah. You were the whole, your womb is the Holy Grail. You're birthing children. Yeah. Oh, exactly. But I think that's the cool thing about both of them is they challenged those dynamics of society. Yeah. You know, and like mm-hmm. Guinevere's like, I'm more than a chalice because this cup isn't getting filled. Mm-mm. You know, <laughs> however you splice it. And Althea was changing dynamics. Because I think it's important to note that she was not just the first black woman to play in all these tennis tournaments. She was the first black person. Mm-hmm. And that right there is changing the dynamics of society that a woman was so good at this sport that they couldn't deny a whole race. Right. You know, which I think is very powerful. It is powerful. And then we're talking about the first female love triangle that is openly accepted in society. Yeah. Like we know what happened and we're still like, yeah, Queen Guinevere was banging. Yep. Mm. I don't know. These women are fucking cool. This is interesting. I also like didn't know how this just the two of us was going to go because like when the story started, I was like, I don't know what's this is going to be common. Uh, <laughs> are you ready for horoscopes? Yes. All right. So what is your person's horoscope? <laughs> so my person doesn't have a birth. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of wild. So I did a little bit of crazy research to try and figure this out. So Arthur and Guinevere are symbols of the sun and moon, respectively. Okay. And Lancelot is a Scorpio. And what it says for Lancelot was that he's not only a powerful warrior, but was also able to bring the dead, like, back to life, which I don't think is true. But unfortunately, his passion for the lovely and pure Guinevere was his downfall. So what I looked up is... Who are star-crossed lovers for Scorpios? Oh. And Taurus is star-crossed lovers for Scorpios. So then I looked up, what is the moon sign for Taurus? Okay. So here's what I got. Okay. (laughs) The moon sign for Taurus gives a quiet, persistent, determined, conservative, that's a word, and methodical temperament. Torrens show patience, but at times they may also act stubborn, and then it becomes very difficult to change their mind. Women with the moon in Taurus often attract men of settled mind and occupation. Wow. I actually feel like that matches up really well. So that is, and I don't, I mean, I have no idea what her birthday is. I know it's between 450 and 470 AD. <laughs> but That's I'm, as close as a ballpark as we're she's getting. She's a moon sign and Lancelot is supposedly a Scorpio. Okay. So she's a Taurus, I think. There we go. What do you have for Althea's actual? birthday okay so it's she's a virgo Mm -hmm. and this says virgos born on august 25th have a very complicated nature they seem to derive a great deal of emotional sustenance from the approval of those close to them yet they are not afraid to accept challenges 
when these folks find their niche in life, they can be depended upon to oh. make bold strides. Wow. <gasps> Wow. Come on. That's niche right. in life. Tennis is very niche. Super niche. And we also found that her Chinese zodiac is a rabbit. Bouncy, bouncy. And rabbits and tennis go hand in hand for me because my grandmother was a tennis player mm. and her nickname was Bunny. Bunny. So I've always associated bunny rabbits with tennis. So what's I also your, think that's funny. Uh, what's your, uh, your in the Chinese calendar? I am the rooster. Oh. What are you? I'm the a horse? tiger. Oh, you're the tiger. Me and producer and my daughter Caroline are all tigers. Or is that Eliza was a tiger? No. Oh, what Eliza's is Eliza's the, a rabbit? Yeah, That's right. She's the odd one out. Oh, so family. her and Althea Gibson have the same Chinese zodiac. Same. There you go. Perfect. Okay. Let's toast. Let's do that. It's time. Who would you like to toast? I want to toast scorned women who mm. weren't actually that shitty. Yes. yes. Cheers to Cheers. I am going to toast multi-talented women. <laughs> Not many people can say that they are a professional athlete in two different sports and a professional singer and all the other things that Althea Gibson, Gibson did. She's so cool and talented. So cheers to her. Cheers. I can't do one thing. Yeah. I'd love to do one thing good. <laughs> all right. Now that we've done our toast, what are you enjoying in pop culture this week? So there's this incredible, very short book called Stamped. Mm. Um, and it is a history of racism in North America. Hmm. And it was written as a part of a bigger academic book. But now the book Stamped is being read by middle schoolers across the country. Of course, we're all getting yelled at for critical race theory. Um, but it is a really nice, funny, child-friendly book and actually helped me learn a lot about the history of racism because okay. it's only like a few chapters. Um, it's, it's just literally about like, this is what happened before the Europeans came over. This is what happened when they came over. This is where we get this doctrine from and why yeah. we think X, Y, Z. And it's not accusatory of anyone. People are getting angry because white people end up being the bad guys, but it's not accusing anyone of anything. It's just yeah. saying this is the history. And it is a really, I am so honored that kids across America are reading this as a part of their curriculum. Well, Kids in blue states are reading uh -huh. this as a part of their curriculum. And if you're not living in a district where your eighth grader in their history class gets to read stamped, then please get it out of the library for them or the audiobook. Okay. Because it, it I I actually learned a lot that I didn't know. That's amazing. So and All it, right. I mean, audiobook, I did it in less than a day. It's like a podcast. Okay. It's very short. Perfect. Okay. What are you All promoting? Right. I'm going to do uh, Killing Eve season four. Oh. It's the final season of Killing Eve. That show was so fucking good. Got Sandra it. Oh, Jodie Comer. My God. That cast, Fiona Shaw. I think it's Fiona Shaw who's up. She played Mrs. Dursley in the Harry Potter series. A hero. This show is so good and I'm, I'm pretty positive i can't believe if, if i would be shocked to myself if i hadn't promoted before mm -hmm. um because the first season is so so good um 
And this last season kind of gets back to it. Season three was kind of a lag for me. I didn't understand what was going on. <laughs> but season four, it's so good. The music is perfect. The outfits are on point. And it's very exciting. I like that. I think that fiance and I are going to watch the final episode tonight. <gasps> Shut up. I got to get you So home. I got to go. I, I have to leave, guys. Oh, man. But besides all that, we like you. We love you. We love you. And we love it when you rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. That's the best way to show your love for us if you enjoyed this time with us today. We want you on Patreon. We would love you on Patreon for just a dollar a month. You can contribute to all this alcohol we're imbibing. Obviously, we imbibed a little bit extra tonight. We're crazy. Yeah. Um, but if you'd like to hang out with us, we also post extra little snippets of fun talks and times afterwards. Mm -hmm. So if you want more of this, come hang out with us on Patreon. Um, and if you would just like to drink with us, we post our cocktails every Tuesday on Tipsy Tuesdays. And that way you can get the ingredients. And you can, like Miss Krista and Mr. Krista, drink along with us. Which I every still can't week? believe that they do that. We love you. We love you. We love you. We like you. We respect you. And we want you, wherever you are, to never forget that well-behaved women have a favorite pen. They do. And they really make history. Goodbye. listening to her story on the rocks we are independently produced by 1986 entertainment and proudly recorded in baltimore maryland if there's a woman in history you would like us to cover you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com you can also message us on twitter or instagram we post all of our cocktail recipes on tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us see you next week bye